be my property. <laughs> okay, uh, hi everyone. Welcome to the second event in the new writing series for this quarter. Um, my name is Ben. Uh, there's another young man named Ben who is going to introduce Lily Wang. Um, I'll remind you first, uh, as the larger, more intimidating Ben, to turn off your cell phones or make them uh, quiet. Uh, <laughs> or you may be equally as intimidating, but yeah, yeah. Uh, just in a, yeah. Sorry. Uh, <laughs> I just have this image of myself uh, as being quite scary. Uh, the, um, I'll thank the Dean's Office of Arts and Humanities for his... Uh, for his, for their general support of, uh, generous support and general support of our, of our, I'm glad I'm not reading today, uh, of our series, and, uh, and remind you, uh, November 14th, the Canadian novelist Gail Scott will be here to read for us as well. Um, so, uh, I'll also remind you that the, these readings are being recorded, uh, by Special Collections Library, um, and they're available as podcasts. So uh, if you hear something you, you want to hear more of, you can go visit and hear it again. So um, Ben Se Siegel. <laughs> Sorry. Uh, All right. Um, whoa. This got, this got real. Um, I can't see any of you. I don't... Um, just the whole, like, imagine the audience naked thing isn't going to work if they're not visible at all. Um, so, um, yeah, so I'm, I'm, I'm going to start with the, the, the basic, like, giving Lily's credentials and how, uh, how we do that. Uh, so Lily Wong is the author of The Evolutionary Revolution, Parabola, Changing, and most recently, Unfinished. She's also the co-editor with Blake Butler of, 30, of the 30 Under 30 Anthology and is a professor in the MFA program at New Mexico State University. Um, she's also a frequent contributor to HTML Giant, but we won't hold that against her. Um, that's a website that people make fun of a lot, but it's actually good sometimes. Um, so, wait, wait, by people you mean you? <laughs> yeah, but I mean other people too. Um, there's an internet. But seriously, um, Lily is on my personal shortlist of the most genuinely exciting contemporary writers. Uh, it's not just because she knows how to get the best, uh, she knows how to get into the best hotel parties at AWP. It's not even because she is an incredibly thoughtful, generous, and active supporter of other writers and of the innovative and independent literature communities in general, although she is all of these things. It's because of the remarkable quality of her work. Um, I, so this is where I like, talk a little bit about her work. And then I'm going to do another thing that I'm going to explain because I have to explain why I'm doing things always. I see her as taking on a and crucially updating the project of the Olympians, inject, injecting jouissance into conceptualist gestures and performing feats of formal acrobatics, all the while never abandoning her commitment to story or to stunning sentence-level prose. Um, and so I wanted to, like, because she's here to kind of concept, uh, contextualize what she's doing in relation to what the UCSD writing program sort of holds itself as trying to do. Um, so I like imagine this model UCSD writer. Um, uh, I think it's someone who effortlessly, effortlessly combines and tracks uh, between concerns in poetics and narrative, between ludic exuberance and serious critique, between individual brilliance and collaborative generosity, someone who, is, who has an equal reverence for productivity and potentiality, 
I picture someone who sees no contradiction between literariness and fabulism, fairy tale, and other such modes of fantasy which are normally relegated to the genre gutter. I see someone who embraces the non-exclusivity of theory and art, or intellectualism and aesthetics, or any similarly absurd uh, commonplace binary. I see someone whose work is whip-smart and ethically charged, but without a hint of proselytizing or pedantry, who sees fiction still as a territory to explore, to push, and to continuously reimagine. As is probably obvious, this, this description of the UCSD writer, the ideal, this triton par excellence, serves also as a description of Lily Hong. Uh, Huang, I'm terrible at pronunciations of names. Um, I've been looking forward to this reading all year, so I won't delay it any longer, as I'm extremely excited to finally be able to say, everyone, please join me in welcoming my friend, Lily Hong. Um, thank you, Ben and Ben and Sandra, for general awesomeness. Um, it's actually really warm in here with the light. And, and I usually hate microphones, and Ben wasn't lying, I really can't see anybody. So um, please know that I would generally make eye contact with the audience, but I can't see you, so I won't. <clears throat> Dear readers, listeners, seekers, and friends, I am not a teller of fates. And if you are here to find your fate, you will be sorely disappointed. I am a translator. I am a storyteller. The story I tell is nothing new, it's nothing I have created. This is simply a translation of the I Ching, or Book of Changes. And although I have done my best to be accurate, you will find inconsistencies, and you will find faults, but these are there for you to find. These are the real truths. My friends, I have tried to make this simple. Oh, I fucked up. Ben, can you come back up here? Uh, Siegel. Hold this. I'm holding this, all right. <clears throat> My friends, I have tried to make this simple, but I'm afraid this is a complex text, that this requires instructions, that this requires a history lesson. So we will start with the history. Once upon a time, there was an ancient oracle, and it was called the I Ching. That is what this is. Once upon a time, the oracle was told with engraved sticks, but our strong wind has blown away all those markings. Once upon a time, the oracle was told with coins, but water has swallowed all our gold. Once upon a time, the oracle was told with small papers put into a small cup, but fire has licked all our paper to ashes. Once upon a time, the oracle was told with a pair of dice, and that, dear friends, is what you hold in your hands now. And so we move on to the instructions. In your hands, you hold a cup. Close your eyes. Ask a question. Don't ask a silly, superficial question. Make it good. Make it worthwhile. Open your eyes, roll the dice, and receive your fate, but receive it carefully. If you're still confused, dear readers, here are more guidelines, but they're not important. This can be read any way you want, but I dream of you, friends, standing and thinking of your one question needing resolve, and I dream of you reading your one fate, and this is all you read until your next question. But this is, this is, <clears throat> but this is only dreaming. This is all only reckless dreaming. And so now, dear readers, listeners, seekers, and friends, I invite you to enjoy. No, you roll it. Okay. Eight and five. Fifty-eight. That's it. You can sit down now. Okay, thanks. Fifty-eight. Open. Water over fire, water over water, there is so much water. And don't you know, reader, that water symbolizes rebirth? 
And so here, so close to the end, this is your opportunity for rebirth. Here is the junction, the crossroad. You can open new doors, and there is nothing you can't do, reader. Your future is open. And isn't this what you've been looking for all along, reader? Isn't this the fate you've been yearning to hear? And isn't this just the kind of fortune you want, one of golden opportunities and futures bright? The day little girl ran into the ocean and the ocean opened itself to the little girl and made for her a little path for her to walk through and she thought it would lead to treasure. She thought she'd found a magic map that would lead to the center of the world. And so little girl, she went into the ocean full of surge and passion and the day little girl ran into the ocean, it did not really open itself for her. No, it led her to all that electricity and humility and pain and she regrets it to this day, our dear little girl does. Four years ago, doctors removed inches of mother's colon and took away that poison, and still there is poison in her body, and still there is pain, and how many times must mother's body be opened before she is fully well again? You lover, what big eyes you have, and yet sometimes lover, when you are stressed, your eyes open larger, and one of them wanders away from me, and off somewhere else, maybe somewhere where, again, we are happy. Little girl, when she was a little girl, that she would open her mouth and oh, it was a big mouth. And all the other little kids, <clears throat> and all of the other little kids, but only the ones who looked like her, that spoke the same little language as her, but all the other little kids would gather around and they would sit in a little circle and listen to the little girl's stories. And these were not stories of fantasy or stories of fiction. No little girl never learned those. No, these were stories of gossip, stories of others the secrets wanting silence to be opened. The truth of it is that mother has been in remission from cancer for a year now, but still she suffers. And now the high blood pressure and now the stress of sister, big sister, and the truth of it is that father should have no stress in his life either. That he's now had two strokes, we can count, and so many more he never said. But the truth of it is that now that they are old, sister, big sister has returned. And now the turmoil all over again, because now she's alone and all kinds of worry for them. And Jill, not knowing any better, opened the knocking door and Jack came in dressed in a suit of fur. And Jill said, what do you want, Jack? And Jack said, oh, what pretty eyes you have. And Jill said, what the fuck are you talking about? And Jack said, see what big eyes I have. And Jack said, better to see you with my pretty. And Jack said, see what big teeth I have. And Jill said, better to eat me with my darling. And she opened her mouth and ate him up whole. Can I get another volunteer? Thirty-nine. Thirty-nine, limping. The time she walked along the path and fell, removing the top sheath of her skin, of her knee, she was just walking along the path and fell. It wasn't until he saw her that she realized that there was blood, and then she cried loudly. The three-legged goat hopping down the mountain, and on one particularly muddy rock, his back hoof, the only hoof back there, got caught, and he fell down a third of the cliff. The poor goat had only three hooves and legs. It's an odd one. Um, I describe father's walking as a shuffle, but now that I think about it, it's more like a limp, but both his legs are limping. Only both his legs are bad legs, and he's just trying to get from here to there without falling down. 
She hasn't forgotten how he mocked her with concern, how he told her she shouldn't be so clumsy, how he lectured her on safety, how he cleaned her wound, and then how he kissed her and she kissed back with gratitude. And Jill in school, and Jill learning a lesson about gravity, and the teacher took a cylinder of solid iron, and she used the entire strength of her body, and she thwacked Jill on her shin. And when Jill's entire little body collided on the ground, the teacher explained the rules of gravity, and the class laughed. And Jack, he laughed too. And Jill on the ground, practically crying and unable to stand up, and she limped for months. But this isn't really Jill I'm talking about at all, is it? But I can't tell you who it is. The time I walked along the path and fell, removing the top sheath of skin on my knee. The many times I'm concentrated elsewhere, and it wasn't until I saw you that I realized there was all that blood. And then, lover, I cried. Mountain below water. That's how this should be read. You don't think you need to know these things, but you do. If you can read this, you can read the future. You need to learn to control the lines of fate. Translator translating for this one directly from the stars of fate, translating with self-restraint comes control. This could be translated into with constraint comes practice, which in turn could be read as the more constraints on a thing, the better it will be. If this is true, perhaps this can become a masterpiece as it practices more restraint, constraint, and control than I have ever seen. But perhaps this is just an exaggeration. Perhaps I can't be trusted with something like your trust or your fate. I haven't forgotten, lover, how you mocked me, lover, with concern, how you cleaned my wound with translucent alcohol, and then, lover, you kissed me. I, lover, I thought the red would burn forever. I knew it wouldn't stop. Although he fell hard about halfway down the mountain, the three-legged goat got up, used his sandpaper tongue to drink a dew off, drink dew off a leaf picked a few berries from a berry bush, and slowly hopped down the rest of the way. Can I get another volunteer? Oh, I'm sorry, you didn't try hard enough. You really have to be thinking of a question. Oh, one more time. Thirty-eight. That's how real this is. <laughs> Thirty-eight. Opposition. That I jokingly call you a salt Nazi, and sometimes I call you an organic Nazi. I do it out of admiration, lover. Please don't think that I don't. But sometimes, lover, I lover, I want to add salt to my food, lover, because sometimes... Lover, without salt, the food is bland. And lover, us lovers don't have that much money, and buying organic is expensive. But lover, I make our food without salt, and I buy organic produce because I respect your opposition, even though, lover, it's a bit inconvenient. Sister, big sister, on the borderline, and one day I'm perfect, and one day thinking I'm perfect, and another minute, 15 minutes later, hating me fierce and giving me new names of bitterness, and I being young, fighting back, and much later, I regret. Jack saying, I want to carry the bucket, and Jill holding on tight, and Jill grabbing the metal handle, and Jill yanking it back, and Jack whimpering, and Jill reaching out one hand to push, and losing her footing and tumbling down. 
not remembering her name, but remembering how she was small and violent and schizophrenic and loved to play domino and how she saved up so long to buy a domino set. And they were there so long together, caged together, and I being fresh and new and I being scared and quiet and them telling me to play domino and to relax. And I like a fool playing and she whose name I don't remember, she's seeing patterns invisible to me and chucking dominoes at my face. Father argues, mother does not. Father with bloated numb finger pointing at mother with blame and mother sitting across the circle table and breathing it in and father speaking and father increasing tone violent and mother isn't deaf. It goes against Catholic teaching and brother big brother's unisexuality against Catholic teaching and so brother big brother collects piles of clothes and shoes and linens and Louis Vuitton to hide in his overly spacious closet. Little girl going to school and little girl wanting to be the smartest girl in class and little girl only in first grade and little girl doing long division to show off and little girl playing hangman and little girl picking words that no one knows like altruistic and parsimonious and all the other little kids in the little class hating little girl and little girl just wanting to prove that she's smart but not knowing how she's starting a little war in her little class and it's her little girl against everyone else. Thank you. Um, I'm, I'm just waving to you because I think you're great. The smell. First, the smell. But not the smell of the shop where the coats were kept. No, the shop smell of lilacs and talcum powder, of new leather and old money. There's a different texture, a complexity to old wealth, the way it coils around in your nasal cavity. The shop smell of starch shirts and laundered trousers, of gloves and wood-burning fireplaces. The shop smelled of tobacco and hearing aids and carpet so thick it molds around your foot if you stand in one place for more than 30 seconds. My shoes almost got caught in that carpet when I was running out. It was like quicksand. They didn't catch me carrying the dead, two fur coats over each shoulder, a hat, and a assortment carry goods. They didn't catch me that night, or the next, or for the next few years. I wouldn't allow it. If they caught me, they'd catch me with hands full of the living of those most needing rescue. They didn't catch me, though. By them, I mean you. You didn't catch me. No, I'm not here because you caught me in any act. I'm here because of betrayal, not that I mind. I've known since I was a little I've been a martyr. And whereas this isn't death per se, well, let's just say you don't really know what death can mean. But you know this, of course. And you know that you have no evidence against me except for Elgin's word. What's the value of a word of a man guilty of terrorism, though? That's what he was tried for, right? Terrorism? Domestic terrorism. I'm here because Elgin gave my name, but I'm also here on my own volition. Remember that. At one point, I had 700 make running, the forest ahead, the smell of leaves turning orange, then brown. I can smell it, but I'm sure you have no idea what I'm talking about. The smell of the place, not the shop we raided two years earlier, a trial run where the only casualties would be me and Elgin. The victims were already dead, their pelts fluffed into winter coats, handbags, hand warmers. We used to joke, me and Elgin, before all this, we used to say that if we got caught, at least the mink wouldn't have to suffer with all those old 
rich people anymore. So our first raid was a shop that smelled of lilacs and talcum powder. We saved all those furs from a destiny of bourgeois closets, the occasional jaunt on the town, safely tucked away except for lovely days without a chance of rain or snow or too much sun. One, then another. Five in all, I won't give you names. I could have gone for a few more, but Elgin said we were ready for the real thing. As opposed to the fake thing, of course. And sure, I was impressed with the fact that we'd raided five stores without getting caught, but Elgin was always rem always reminded me not to get cocky, that these were just a test run. They were training for the real thing. The real thing isn't what you'd expect. Have you been there? I mean, I'm sure you've been there for evidence. It's not what I expected at all. The shops, they weren't adequate training, not the kind of training we really needed. It's one thing to rob a cushy fur shop. 5,000 stores would have, wouldn't have been anything to prepare me for the factory. And no one warned me. First, the smell. I hadn't expected the smell. So many years later, after Elgin got caught and testified, after he snitched on me, on Alice, so many years later, what he left out of all of it was a smell. Maybe he couldn't describe it, quantify it, or maybe the fear of the impending trial somehow overpowered the fear he once smelled in others, and those more helpless than he'd ever be, than he'd ever be, subjected to more torture, those awaiting not probation and some community service and an inconvenient fine, but those promised to a certain bloody death. On them, there was a smell of fear and apathy on Elgin, that day of his trial, somehow I smelled only malaise, inevitability, a resigned acceptance of shit. On the animals, the smell of torture. On Elgin, the smell of ennui. On the animals, the smell of being forgotten, an aftertaste of death. On Elgin, the smell of a deeply desired spotlight. Only this was not the way he was supposed to be honored. My people all have some story that grounds their actions, a story dating back to precognition, some puppy that was hit by a car, a stray chicken growing up on a farm, to explain how they wet their activist lips. My people tell grand stories. Alice hid a lamb in her room so it wouldn't be killed. Johnny heard 15,000 cows across a river into a meadow for safety. Renee took a bullet in the leg to explain to her parents the cruelty of euthanasia. I've heard them all. Nothing would surprise me now. Each one of these stories more far-fetched than the one before it, but we all keep them as treasures, as booty, as war wounds. I want to say I believe them, but most of them are ridiculous. I don't even remember Elgin's story. It was grand, though, literally jaw-dropping. That's Elgin's way. He doesn't fuck around. That's why we followed him. I followed him. I think I fucked him that first night we met when he told me his story. Funny how I don't remember it. Then again, I think I fucked a lot of people because of their stories. Many of them were pity fucks. Most of them were jealous fucks. I made up that term, you know, jealous fucks. It's pretty obvious. You fuck because you're jealous. And I was jealous of most of my people, mainly because they had stories, stories that enticed. I don't have a story dating back to childhood. I ate meat until my senior year of college. Even then, once I understood, I cheated. I still cheat. I hate that idea, cheating. It implies being ill-prepared. I was, am, prepared. 
I make my own rules. So what if I eat meat every once in a while? Weight against the good I've done, all those fur coats, all those animals in testing facilities and CAFOs, a little steak doesn't do any harm. If I could, believe me, I would knock out all the bloody blocks it took to build my body. Sometimes I look at my body in front of a mirror and I wonder what bits and pieces I've incorporated into myself. Not just meats, bones, and organs, but suffering and torture. How can we ever truly be happy when, when we consume this constant stream of helplessness and pain? I don't have the story, but I have this. I have understanding. And the memory of smell. All those animals. Sometimes I wonder if eating all that suffering has made me so, so thin, made my face so ugly because I am ugly. I don't say that to get some kind of denial from you. I'm not like that. I've accepted this about myself since I was a kid. No story, sure, but ugliness. It's kind of like a story. And I've done a lot of ugly things. When I first met Elgin, I asked if I could pay a penance, maybe a lump sum of money to PETA. He said I could do better than that, and I could. It was Elgin, of course, who first introduced me to the philosophy I now embrace. He was in one of my advertising classes. You'd think it would be ethics or philo or something like that, but no, it was advertising. Come to think of it, maybe this is my story. Elgin spoke with more confidence than the professor. It was my senior year. I'd never heard anyone talk like him. I stopped eating meat that first day he spoke in class. He was that compelling. He's not so compelling anymore but his charm hasn't worn thin. He smelled of earnestness. That, I think, was the defining difference between Elgin and everyone else, even the professor. They smelled of postmodern indifference. Elgin took me on a field trip that first day I met him. I don't remember what he said or what I said. I've never been a sentimentalist like that, but I do remember the drive to the farm. He lied to me, not that I cared told me we were going to see a cousin of his. Or maybe Elgin thought it was true. I tried to be nonchalant about it. I guess I was trying to impress him. But how often do you really look at a farm? I mean, really look. No, we don't look at farms. We don't look at cows or chickens or pigs. We eat and we eat blindly. We eat advertisements. We eat colorful packaging. Then again, that's part of my job. I make it easier for you. I have to be honest, I've never been an animal lover. I never had pets. I cared more about getting into a top five MBA program more than anything else. And then the farm, and then the smell. To prove how unshaken I was, after the farm, I insisted we have fast food. I had the works. Burger with extra cheese and bacon, fries, a milkshake. When we pulled up to pay, Elgin smiled. He winked at me. I can't remember anything we said that whole damn trip, but I can remember he winked at me. When I got the bag of food and held it in my hands, I threw up on the steering wheel. I couldn't even open the door. Some things I never realized. There's a weight to food, a heaviness that isn't quantified into pounds and ounces, and there's a smell. Quick as it was, I was Pavlov's dog. The smell of fast food became synonymous with the slaughterhouse. Rubber, hot water, bleach, blood, 
all the extra parts that are washed down the drain, like before and after shots, life and death, death for my life. I was holding a cow's death in my hands. How does it feel? It feels like murder. It feels like I am the reaper, that I may as well have beheaded the thing myself. It's not death for my life, though. My life doesn't want it. But I'm misleading a little. I wasn't the only one Elgin took. There was a whole group of us. I guess I should have clarified that. But I was special, don't get me wrong. Even though he took a whole group of us, he was with Alice, he told me. He didn't hide it. But that didn't stop him from kissing me after I threw up. He said something about how he couldn't help himself with me. I'm sure he didn't say it like it was a cliche, though. But now that I think about it, think back on it, it's all kind of like a teenage movie. All the drama, all the heartbreaks, all the passion, except my people have a cause. We have a purpose. What's the purpose to a bunch of rich kids on TV? That's what differentiates us. I'm not some hippie activist kid, though, so don't look at me like that. I'm wearing Prada for fuck's sake. These shoes are custom made. Do you know how many non-leather pumps Prada makes? I'll tell you. Only the ones in my closet. So I want to clarify. I'm here partially by choice. I'm not what you expect, and that's what makes me powerful. That's what makes my people strong. We blend in, we make money, and at night, we liberate. All those shops, they made us high. But what can you do with a living, living room full of fur? The animals were already dead. It was Alice's idea, but it was my money. We went to South America, Russia, Africa, China, Eastern Europe. We walked the streets and gave fur coats to the homeless. We gave them bread and wine. We redistributed wealth. We should have stayed right here, though. We should have given our own homeless those coats, but we were young and romantic. We didn't know any better. If I had it to do over again, I would have walked right into a women's shelter with arms full of fur. I would have told them to wear it or sell it. I'd give them the going price. It's not the money I regret. It's not the time I spent with Elgin or Alice either. The shops made us feel powerful. That summer I, after I got my MBA, we went on our trip around the world, the three of us. When we got back, I smelled of power. I didn't want to call it charity. That's what Catholics do. I didn't want to call it a mission. That's what Christians do. My people, we belong to a different understanding. I mean, we can subscribe to any religion at face value, but when it comes down to the dirt of it, we all bow to the smell. You know what I mean. You've been there. It's not reverence that makes us bow. It's sickness and disgust, the rising of vomit inside our chests. We are blown down to our knees, and there we have no choice but to humble ourselves. And there's nothing romantic about it. If it were up to me, I'd live my life in peace. I don't want to do it. I've tried to stop, you know. I tell myself this is all just a phase, and to prove it, I eat meat. A lot of it. Nothing but meat. Maybe a little dairy thrown in just for kicks, and then the smell creeps into my nose. Usually when I'm working out, the smell comes out through my sweat. I'm running on mile four or five, and I can't believe people at the gym aren't staring at me. It stinks. It's a smell, and it's coming from my pores, from my body, and that's it. I can't do it. I go crawling back to Elgin. I don't want to be a cliche, but that's literally what it feels like. I grovel. I beg Elgin to vanquish the smell like he's some priest, some exorcist. What will I do now, now that Elgin's not here? Thing is, even when he gets out, it won't be the same. I saw him in that courtroom. He's not the same. 
Nothing relieves the guilt of being away like the factories. Nothing compounds the guilt of being away like the labs. Sometimes we'll do a shop for fun. That doesn't help me, though, not when I've been away. And you can't really tie me to any of this. I know that, or rather, you wouldn't dare attach my name to any of this. I'm not being cocky. You already know this. The first factory, it looked harmless on the outside, except you could smell it 10 miles away. It's not the stink of manure or the blood that gets to you. Sure, that's the stuff that churns the stomach, but you can wash that off when you're done. Some smelling salts, a nice bath, and you're set. No, it's the sterility that blankets the floor and hovers five feet above ground. It's bleach and disinfectant, chemicals, a freshly cleaned bathroom. It doesn't cover everything, though. There's a zone in the middle. That's what gets to you. If you can keep your, keep your nose above that arbitrary line, you're good. But me, I'm short enough that I'm caught in that zone. It's painful in there. Every movement is weighted down in the smell. It's hard to see. You get this dizzy sensation, and there's so much to do, and you're in some stop animation sequence. Does this make sense to you? You have to become a little robotic, or you won't, be able, you won't move. You won't be able to. I think of all the animals there. How do they even stand up? How is it possible? The first factory? Chickens. I threw up more than I'd eaten all week. Their beaks were sanded off. They had more than two thighs. I don't think they could stand up. They didn't even have enough feathers to cover their body. They looked more than naked. The first factory? I opened the cages and they wouldn't move. They weren't that different from the damn fur coats. This is something my people should have warned me about. I thought I'd open a cage and they'd all run free. I didn't know I'd have to pick them up, move them. I should have, though. We brought our own cages. That should have been a hint, but it was my first factory. I didn't think it all through. Until I was already there, cage open, chicken stagnant. What's worse is they thought I was going to feed them or kill them. Either way, it already felt like death to me. It was Alice who came in. She put all my chickens in a cage. She put her bloody feathered hand on my shoulder, and then she ran off. There were more chickens, and I was frozen, stuck. It was Elgin who dragged me back to the van. He told me the next one would be easier. It wasn't. The first factory, I couldn't wash off the smell. I learned to live with it. I thought others could smell it on me, too. I couldn't shower it off of me. But the day after the first factory, I got a promotion. I thought it was some kind of sign. My new office was bigger than my apartment. It had a great view. But when I looked out the window, all I could see were those chickens, lame and pathetic. I don't have to tell you this, but I've upgraded both offices and apartments since then. I guess you already know that, though. I'm also not the same person. I'm also not the same person I was after that first factory. I'm no longer inert when I look at their faces. I don't need Alice or Elgin to come save me. If I wanted, I could call the shots. But that's not what you want to hear. You want to hear how Elgin was our leader, how we're lame, pathetic chickens without him. You want me to tell you I won't do it again, that I've somehow reformed. Okay, so I'll tell you. I need Elgin. I can't do it without him. My people aren't really a people anymore. After Elgin got arrested, after he snitched, 
after he was sentenced, we disbanded. We can't do it without him. He never trained us. He never made a contingency plan. He never came up with a list of bogus names, names you'd never expect to be implicated in this sort of thing. Lawyers, business executives, doctors, professors. Because you want to know I lied before. The smell, it can go away. After a while, you just forget about it. Life goes on. I have my corner office. I have my money, my house in the suburbs, my life. Now that Elgin is locked up, I don't have to feel guilty. And just to prove it, let's go have a burger. Thank you. Few more lights, and uh, maybe some of you have some questions for, for Lily. Thanks. Oh. That's good. Uh, Lily, you also have a couple books with you too, don't you? Yeah, I have. I have two copies of Unfinished, and uh, I guess I should explain it, if in case you couldn't tell by the audio. Um, this book, Unfinished, that the last story came from, is uh, I asked 20 of my favorite writers to send me their trash, stories that they couldn't finish or wouldn't finish, and they did, and I finished them for them. And so what you heard was uh, the, what Carol Guess, who's a writer out of Washington, sent me. And when I started reading was when I started writing, essentially. And I have uh, a whole two copies of that book right down there. <laughs> so fight for it. Um, does anyone have any questions? Are you vegetarian? I have to ask now. No, I'm not. Okay. <laughs> um, I, w I was for a while. Um, but, if, but from the opening, you can tell that that was, that was kind of where she was. Yeah. And so I had to keep on going. I had no choice, um, but I was for many years. I was up until like six months ago, or maybe four months ago, vegetarian. Mm -hmm. Yeah. What led you to take the piece that you started writing to the direction that it went to? How did it get to that point? With this? Yeah, what you just read. Um, well, I really wanted to write the story that the writer had intended to write. And so I tried to keep stylistically as much in common as possible. And, and, you know, the story that I read, she gave me a long excerpt. Some writers gave me a sentence, and those were the easiest stories to finish. Because if someone gives you a sentence, you can go wherever you want with it. But if someone gives you two pages of text, you're kind of stuck. Um, and so I, I thought about it a lot, and, and as I was writing it, I thought it would just be fun to play with who the speaker is and the way that she interacts with um, the inquisitor, I guess, or the audience. Um, and so that's, that's kind of how I got there. I'm not sure if that answered your question. I'm not sure if you were asking how I got there plot-wise or... Yes. Um, when you began, you were using the dice and using you know, chance to figure out the passage you would read. How much do you use chance or experimentation when you're writing or narrative? 
Um, okay, so you asked, uh, I just remembered that I'm supposed to repeat back the question. Um, so you, you, you asked how uh, during the reading I used dice to dictate the actual reading and how that, whether that translates into the writing process. And actually, it, it doesn't. Um, I'm, I'm very orderly. Uh, about the writing process. Ben had mentioned the Ulipo, and I'm, I'm really big into constraint. So all of, every project that I've written has some kind of, um, mostly mathematical constraint to it that, that drives at least um, the process of writing. Does that make sense? So my first book is called Parabola, and it starts with chapter 10, and it ends with chapter 10, and it, shape, it traces the shape of a parabola. Uh, and so the, that's the kind of thing that I usually do, um, something that is a very superficial constraint that, that simply provides order, and then from there, what happens with the story is really elastic. Yes? On the stories that... Um, so you you asked um, if the readers have all the, the other writers have all read the, ch the the stories that I finished, and they have read them all. And um, of the there are 21 stories in the collection. One person's I finished two of his stories, and they've all read them. And for the most part, everyone's been really satisfied. There's only one person who is dissatisfied with his story, and. Um, you know, I solicited all of these, and then one random person, I have no idea who it is, just sent me an, an unfinished story. <laughs> and I was like, okay, this is fun. The one person that I don't know, I'm definitely going to do it. Uh, except when I opened it up, it was this story about someone getting stopped at a security drug point in Illinois. And I've never been stopped at a security drug point in Illinois, so I imagined that it wasn't real. And, of course, he had, he had you know, drugs in his car. Um, and so what I did with the story was I made it this magical realism story where space stretched. And uh, he ends up doing cartwheels out of the car and, you know, magical things happen. And, you know, space keeps expanding between here and the, uh, and the security checkpoint. And he got it back and he's like, this was a realist story. <laughs> well, you know, this is what happens when you give someone a story to finish. It's kind of out of your control. So, uh, but other than that, everyone else is really happy. Or at least they said they were really happy. Um, in the back first, in the, the baseball team. What was the conceit then for the evolutionary revolution? Or, the, or was there one? There was. Um, there's, there's like a, a, a math formula based on where it is in time. And also my constraint was I, I write in a very specific way. Um, I'm really, uh, what's the word? I, I just have my routine and I stick with it. Um, so usually I, I write using pink noise or brown noise in my ears to block out sound and I write by hand. And um, for that book, I listened to Neutral Milk Hotels in the Aeroplane Over the Sea on repeat. <laughs> and so, it sounds like a really odd constraint, but that's what happened. And so it's, you can, if you're familiar with the album, you can hear it kind of just moving in all the time. And that's actually my most 
loosely constrained book, but yeah. Yes. Um, so you said that a lot of like, your work is always like kind of based on some sort of math formula. So like, how did you start writing then? Like, what did you go, or were you into math first and then went into writing, or was it just you like both? No, I think that's just a fetish. <laughs> I like I like math. Uh, actually, my my friend Sarah's here. We went to undergrad together. Um, so she remembers me back in the day. Um, I think that my dad was a mathematician, and so I've always been really fascinated with math, and I think that if I had it to do over again, and if I were smart enough, I'd be a mathematician. And so this is my way of being able to accept the fact that I'm a writer and <laughs> and not someone who's doing something in, in math or science. Thank you.